What child is this? Yes. Yes. That is the question. That, that has always been the question. What child is this? That, that, that single question was the driving force behind our lengthy journey. We had to figure out what child this is. And I know. My friends, we have been called wise by many of the people we encountered along our journey, if even for a brief moment. <laughs> I, I hesitate to, to give much credence to their judgment. But it is known, or it should be known, that knowledge is acquired by keeping one's eyes open and mouth shut. So, may I suggest that you keep your mouths closed and your ears open and I will to the best of my ability answer your question as clear as I can. One, we did not stumble upon this child. No, we found a needle in a haystack. And how did we find this needle? We followed the star. I know. To many, that would be considered a fool's errand, but we are no fools. No, that star was moved by some unseen force. And who moves stars? But God. Two. We encountered that corrupt king. That king wanted us to find the child so that he could worship the child. My friends, do kings worship babies? No. Kings defend their thrones. And that king, that king, that Herod, is a ruthless and cruel despot. It does not take a wise man to discern that. And that king felt that this child was a threat. And mark my words, that child is a threat to all who are cruel and ruthless. And three, I don't have words for three. My entire life I have searched. And yet it was always just beyond the horizon of my knowing. Until, in an instant, I crossed a threshold and there it was. That father, that mother, that star, the child. It was all there. All my searching, all my studying, it was all right there. All in that child. 
How could I not worship him? I need search no more. We are in our second week of Advent, a four-week season that we use to begin to prepare our hearts for Christmas. A couple of years ago, I combined a couple of different things together to come up with a practical definition of Advent that I still like, so I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to share it again. Advent is waiting, expecting, observing, praying, hoping, and preparing for the arrival of Christ, first as the child and Savior and then as a returning king. Advent is about waiting. Just as the Israelites waited for the Savior, it is about expecting, knowing that he could come at any moment. It's about observing, watching for his arrival. It is about praying, asking for his return. It's about hoping, knowing that the only true fulfillment any of us will ever feel will come with his return. And it is about preparing being prepared for his coming. And so we enter into a season called Advent to wait, to expect, to observe, to pray, to hope, and to prepare for the king. Recognizing that Advent first points us to Christmas, but also to his return. And in doing so, we are to be reminded of the very nature of the gospel, that at his first coming, while we were still in our sin, Rather than asking us to dig out of the hole we created for ourselves, the God of the universe loved us enough to send his son to rescue us, to pay the penalty that our sin demanded. And so we are to be reminded that the word became flesh, that God took on human form and he dwelled among us, that God sent his only son to be born a baby in Bethlehem of Judea. Last week, we entered into our Advent series entitled, What Child Is This? Obviously taken from the hymn we just sung. And we're to be reminded that the child, the baby, came not just to be our Savior, but also to be our shepherd, as was prophesied in Ezekiel 34 and illustrated for us in Psalm 23, amongst other Old Testament passages. Therefore, it was fitting that the Lord sent an angel and his glory to the shepherds because he too would be a shepherd like Abraham and David before him. So this week, as we continue on in our Advent series, we're going to be looking at the wise men in Matthew chapter 2, considering their stories. So if you've got a Bible, I'd invite you to open it up to Matthew chapter 2. If you didn't bring one, there's a red pew Bible in the pew in front of you. We will start in verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, the first thing we have to do when we enter into this text is to do some work to differentiate between what the Bible actually says and what tradition holds. That is, what the text says versus what we might have heard and believe. First, the English text calls them wise men, but more appropriately, we call them magi. 
I say that because the text at no point refers to them as kings. This is an idea that comes from tradition and has no merit in the text. Hence, we will not sing We Three Kings, as it has no bearing from the text. We should also note that the text doesn't give us a number, nor does it give them names. There could have been two, we can get to that because it's a plural noun, but there could have also been three, ten, twelve, or many more, we don't know. And you might have even heard that their names were Gaspar, Melchior, and Belteshazzar. That too comes from tradition, having no merit in the text. What the text tells us is that these wise men, these magi, came from the east. So what is a wise man? The Greek word from which we get magi comes from a Persian word that means experts regarding the stars, which is to say they were probably astrologers. And in fact, we would find them at least one other place in the Bible, hundreds of years before the birth of Christ. You find them in the book of Daniel as a priestly caste of Chaldeans who could interpret dreams. Tradition holds then that these men, these magi, came from Babylon where they would have studied parts of the Old Testament, including the book of Daniel, that they would have seen while the nation of Israel was in captivity there. So you put all those facts together, and this is what you come up with. We have multiple astrologers who are unnamed who see a star in the east. And whether by direct revelation of God or by interpretation of Old Testament prophecy, they believed that the star would lead them to the king of the Jews. Now those are all facts. Those are all important things. Those clarify the story for us. But what I really want you to hear is this. That when the first century readers of the Gospel of Matthew finished reading the story of Jesus' birth in chapter 1 and turned to chapter 2 and read about the Magi, they would have been shocked. They would have been disturbed. In fact, one of the commentators that I read this week suggested that it should read much more like this. Behold, Matthew writes, look at this. The astrologers are coming. Pagan sorcerers are looking for Jesus. The wizards want to worship him. Behold, this is both shocking and spectacular. See, when we pick up our Bibles, we read it, we don't engage that part. We don't see that. From the Gospel of Matthew, the shocking part of the text is that the first people to recognize Jesus and to seek after him were not those who should have been waiting, expecting, observing, praying, hoping, and preparing for the Messiah. No, the first people to recognize Jesus were Gentiles. Gentiles who shouldn't have even had a clue but they were even worse than being non-Jews. They were pagan star watchers. They were perceived to be sorcerers. And yet it's these men who want to worship Jesus. And so what Matthew does here is he begins a theme in his book that actually carries out all the way if you keep watching it. That the religious people, the Jews... Those that should, you should expect to receive Jesus with great expectation are instead apathetic and even hostile towards him. While the lowly, the unworthy, and the unexpected 
eagerly seek after him. And so to the first readers of the Gospel of Matthew, all the way to us, what this passage does for us is offer us a heart check. As God's people, as his church, living in 2018, those who should live expectantly, those who should be living intentionally, we need to be challenged and consider the question. Are we eagerly seeking after the Messiah? Or are we apathetic and lazy? That, that really is the question that this text begs by some regard. Matthew brings up this contrast immediately between these pagans who are chasing Jesus versus the religious types who are lazy. One of the most interesting aspects of doing youth and college ministry for the number of years that I did was watching the reactions of students who'd been in the church their whole lives. In particular, their reaction to those who had just come to faith and were passionate about it. You have a student who comes to to know Jesus, just finds grace and is passionate about it. You'll quickly figure out these people want everybody to know about Jesus. They want everybody to know about His grace. They come on with passion and zeal. And I've always been befuddled and even saddened by how often it is that those who've been in the church their whole lives don't take that well. They even take it hostily. They take it like they're priests and scribes. They don't know what to do with these people who have a passion they don't have. So they push back on it. We'll see that in the priests and scribes here in starting in verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all of Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. You should start to see the contrast. These are the people who should know. The people who should be awaiting the Messiah. And yet, when they hear about it, the text says they are troubled. Now again, let me remind you, these are the people who should have been studying the book, who should have seen this coming, and yet now they're hearing about it. And we can certainly understand a power-hungry king being troubled, as the video suggested, how it might threaten his rule. But the text also suggests that all of Jerusalem was troubled as well. It starts to paint this picture that even from the very beginning, people are going to be put off by the idea of Jesus. Especially the religious types. Especially those who think they can earn their way in. Especially those who think they can be good enough are going to be put off by this idea of grace. And the inherent message that Jesus not only brings, but is. And so Herod gathers the priests and the scribes together to find out more, not just about the king, as the Magi suggest, but about the Christ. 
And if you follow along the text, you should see that this is Herod's word. The Magi didn't bring this word to bear. They didn't say he's the Messiah. They didn't say he's the Christ. They said he was the king. But it seems to imply that Herod knew what that meant. He seemed to know. And you should know that Herod was a Jew. And upon hearing this idea that the Messiah, the Savior, has come, he's troubled. And he asks. And so the priests and the scribes, those who should know the text the best, the scribes literally spend all of their time copying the Old Testament. They should know the word forward and backward, quote back Micah 5.2 to him. Starting verse 5, they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least amongst the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, of course, we should note that the book of Micah was written over 700 years before the birth of Jesus. And this is only one of the prophecies concerning Jesus that would be fulfilled in his coming. Now I want you to hear this. That there are over 48 messianic prophecies in the Old Testament, including, and listen careful to these, I'm about to give you 10. Daniel 9 tells when he's coming. Numbers 9 tells of a star that would rise from the house of Jacob. Isaiah 7 tells us that he would be born of a virgin. Genesis 12 tells us he'd be a descendant of Abraham. 2 Samuel 7 tells us he'd be a descendant of David. All of these books, written written well before the time of Jesus, all pointing to him, right? Zechariah 9 tells us that he would later enter into Jerusalem triumphantly riding on a donkey. Later in Zechariah, Zechariah 11 tells us that he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Isaiah 52 paints the picture that he will suffer greatly. Psalm 22 and Zechariah 12 tells us that he will be pierced. Genesis 22 tells us he will be a willing sacrifice. Exodus 12 tells us that he will be the sacrificial Passover lamb. And Psalm 34 tells us he'd be executed without breaking a bone. Friends, Jesus' coming fulfills 48 prophecies in the Old Testament that we can point to specifically. That's not counting loose things that we go, maybe. And if you follow Jesus' birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection, you'd find at least, that's a minimum, of 324 Old Testament passages that we could look at and go, clearly that's Jesus. Clearly Jesus is the fulfillment that the, the prophets were writing about. Clearly this is pointing to Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior. I share all of that because the wise men did not find Jesus on accident. They found him because they knew what they were looking for. They knew to look for a star. 
And they knew when the star showed up what it would point them to, and they followed it to a house. Jesus, the Anointed One, the Messiah, the Savior, the One who would come to rescue His people from sin, the One who has prophesied over and over and over again throughout the entire Old Testament, and the wise men saw it, And the religious types, the priests, the scribes, the ones who should have seen it, didn't. And here's the convicting part. Either they were too blind, they were too hard-hearted, or they were too busy. Part of the reason why we start to slow down in Advent is so we can be mindful about preparing our hearts for Christmas. Some of the questions we should ask ourselves, am am I blind right now? Am I living in a blind way? Am I hard-hearted? Am I living in a hard-hearted way? Am I too busy? Am I living in a way that's too busy to seek after him. We're spending four weeks trying to slow us down a little bit to get us to remember that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, that Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ, came. And the wise men and the scribes give us a warning that in the midst of this, we should check our hearts for it is not too late for us. Verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Now, this brings us back to constructing a biblical view of the scene. I want us to be a biblically literate congregation. So let's pay attention to verse 7 for a minute. Because Herod wants to know when the star appeared so that he can figure out how old Jesus is. Why? Because this is another place where tradition departs from what the text suggests. For if the star appears when Jesus is born... And that triggers the Magi to travel west. They didn't get there the day he was born. Which is to say that if you're setting up your nativity scenes, you should set the wise men on the other side of the room. Just to be biblically informed people. Jesus, the shepherds go over here. Wise men go way over there. And if you're like my house and you got like 17 sets, like spread them all out. It is likely that when these guys arrive, Jesus is anywhere from a year to 18 months old. How do we get that? First, Herod calls Jesus a child and not a baby. Verses 11 and 12 actually confirm that he's a child and not a baby. Those words are different. Finally, we find that Jesus is visiting a house or that Jesus was found in a house and not in a stable. And then finally, by the end of chapter 2 in Matthew, we won't travel that far in Matthew 2 this morning, you find Herod, rather than seeking Jesus, rather than 
worshiping Jesus begins to kill off all the male children under two. That gets to the depth of his depravity that having known that he was the king, having figured out that he's the Messiah, having sent people to tell him where he's at, is too lazy to go pursue him himself. And so rather than finding the Messiah or worshiping this Messiah, responds by killing all the kids under two, all the little boys. The text continues in verse 9. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Now, science has done a lot of work to try to figure out this star. Was it planets that came together making a super beautiful star in the sky? Or was it a movement of the Shekinah which led the Israelites? The answer is, we don't know. But clearly this star moves. It clearly moves around leading them to where they need to go and the wise men follow the star and it seems that it leads them all the way to the house to find the child Jesus. And they bring the response that the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ deserves. Not apathy, not laziness, not hostility. They respond with exceeding rejoicing and great joy. For the Messiah has come, the anointed one, the Christ. Which is to say that should be our response. In the Christmas season, to Christ is great joy. It's rejoicing. Which is my call to you as we sing Christmas songs, which we only get to sing like once a year. Unless you're the weird type that sing them all year long. To sing them a little bit more robustly. To dig into some passion and let it stir in you a little bit. That God loves you enough to send His Son. That's the reality of this season. That Jesus came for us, it should stir some passion in us. Verse 11, and going into the house, again the house, not a stable, they saw the child with Mary his mother. Note, they didn't worship Mary. And they fell down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures. They offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. There are Prophecies in the Old Testament that points to the Gentiles giving gifts of great wealth to the Messiah. That's in fulfillment of prophecy. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they depart to their own country by another way. Do you see the contrast? From the scribes, from the priests, from Herod. Apathy from the wise men, from the magi, those whom we should not expect, they pursue after him. They find him. They fall down and they worship him. And they give him gifts. And then to honor him, they go home a different way. 
Friends, this Advent season, we celebrate that Jesus was the Messiah, that He was the Anointed One, that He was the long-expected Savior of the Jews, that He was the Christ. That from the moment that sin entered into the world in Genesis 3, the entire Old Testament begins to whisper that there is someone coming. That there's someone coming to rescue God's people from the sin that we walked into. And we celebrate on Christmas that Jesus, the Messiah, the long-awaited one, was born. So as we consider this Advent season, I want you to consider the Magi. And I want you to consider the priests and the scribes. What will your response to him be? For it's a decision we all get to make. We all have to make. And I want to encourage you to slow down. To slow down. And to slow down. And to take some intentional time to worship the King. Whether spending time reading through the Advent story, whether reading Advent devotionals, whether just spending more time in the Word. The Magi worshipped Him because they knew He was coming. Because they knew Him. The more you know Him, the more you'll want to worship Him too. Let me pray for us. Father, this season we're brought to remember that you sent your son for us. But we're also brought to remember that those who knew your word knew you were coming and chased after you. Father, we see these two pictures of the apathetic and the passionate. Father, it can be easy for us who've been in the church a long time to be apathetic. Apathetic about our faith and apathetic about a holiday. Father, it could be easy for us to begin to misconstrue this holiday, to make it about family time, to make it about meals with family, to make it about presents and giving the right gifts. When the gift that is demanded by this holiday is our worship to the Anointed One, to the Messiah, to the King. Would you slow us down? And you, would you bring us to a place of worship, to behold our King. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.